Chapter 26 of The Arabian Nights Entertainments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Angelica Gabriella Wilson. The Arabian Nights Entertainments by Andrew Lang. Chapter 26 The Adventures of Prince Kamralzaman and the Princess Badura. Some twenty days' sail from the coast of Persia lies the Isle of the Children of Caledon. The island is divided into several provinces, in each of which are large flourishing towns, and the whole forms an important kingdom. It was governed in former days by a king named Shahsaman, who, with good right, considered himself one of the most powerful, prosperous, and fortunate monarchs on earth. In fact, he had but one grievance, which was that none of his four wives had given him an heir. This distressed him so greatly that one day he confided his grief to the Grand Vizier, who, being a wise counsellor, said, Such matters are indeed beyond human aid. Allah alone can grant your desire, and I should advise you, sire, to send large gifts to those holy men who spend their lives in prayer, and to beg for their intercessions. Who knows whether their petitions may not be answered? The king took his vizier's advice, and the result of so many prayers for an heir to the throne was that a son was born to him the following year. Shah Saman sent noble gifts as thank-offerings to all the mosques and religious houses, and great rejoicings were celebrated in honor of the birth of the little prince, who was so beautiful that he was named Kamaralzaman, or Moon of the Century. Prince Kamaralzaman was brought up with extreme care by an excellent governor and all the cleverest teachers, and he did such credit to them that when he was grown up a more charming and accomplished young man was not to be found. Whilst he was still a youth, the king, his father, who loved him dearly, had some thoughts of abdicating in his favor. As usual, he talked over his plans with his grand vizier, who, though he did not approve the idea, would not state all his objections. Sire, replied he, the prince is still very young for the cares of state. Your majesty fears his growing idle and careless, and doubtless you are right. But how would it be if he were first to marry? This would attach him to his home, and your majesty might give him a share in your counsels, so that he might gradually learn how to wear a crown which you can give up to him whenever you find him capable of wearing it. The vizier's advice once more struck the king as being good, and he sent for his son, who lost no time in obeying the summons, and, standing respectfully with downcast eyes before the king, asked for his commands. I have sent for you, said the king, to say that I wish you to marry. What do you think about it? The prince was so much overcome by these words that he remained silent for some time. At length he said, Sire, I beg you to pardon me if I am unable to reply as you might wish. I certainly did not expect such a proposal as I am still so young, and I confess that the idea of marrying is very distasteful to me. Possibly, I may not always be in this mind, but I certainly feel that it will require some time to induce me to take the step which your majesty desires. This answer greatly distressed the king, who was sincerely grieved by his objection to marriage. However, he would not have recourse to extreme measures, so he said, I do not wish to force you. I will give you time to reflect, but remember that such a step is necessary for a prince such as you who will some day be called to rule over a great kingdom. From this time, Prince Camarazaman was admitted to the royal council, and the king showed him every mark of favor. At the end of a year, the king took his son aside and said, Well, my son, have you changed your mind on the subject of marriage, or do you still refuse to obey my wish? Prince was less surprised, but no less firm than on the former occasion, and begged his father not to press the subject, adding that it was quite useless to urge him any longer. This answer much distressed the king, who again confided his trouble to the vizier. 
I have followed your advice, he said, but Camarazaman declines to marry and is more obstinate than ever. Sire, replied the vizier, much is gained by patience, and your majesty might regret any violence. Why not wait another year, and then inform the prince in the midst of the assembled council that the good of the state demands his marriage? He cannot possibly refuse again before so distinguished an assemblage, and in our immediate presence. The sultan ardently desired to see his son married at once, but he yielded to the vizier's arguments and decided to wait. He then visited the prince's mother, and after telling her of his disappointment and of the further respite he had given his son, he added, I know that Kamar al-Zaman confides more in you than he does in me. Pray speak very seriously to him on this subject, and make him realize that he will most seriously displease me if he remains obstinate, and that he will certainly regret the measures I shall be obliged to take to enforce my will. So the first time the Sultana Fatima saw her son, she told him she heard of his refusal to marry, adding how distressed she felt that he should have vexed his father so much. She asked what reasons he could have for his objections to obey. Madam, replied the prince, I make no doubt that there are as many good, virtuous, sweet, and amiable women as there are others very much the reverse. Would that all were like you. But what revolts me is the idea of marrying a woman without knowing anything at all about her. My father will ask the hand of the daughter of some neighboring sovereign who will give his consent to our union. Be she fair or frightful, clever or stupid, good or bad, I must marry her, and I am left no choice in the matter. How am I to know that she will not be proud, passionate, contemptuous, and recklessly extravagant, or that her disposition will in any way suit mine? But my son, urged Fatima, you surely do not wish to be the last of a race which has reigned so long and so gloriously over this kingdom. Madam, said the prince, I have no wish to survive the king, my father, but should I do so, I will try to reign in such a manner as to be considered worthy of my predecessors. These and similar conversations proved to the sultan how useless it was to urge with his son, and the year elapsed without bringing any change in the prince's ideas. At length the day came when the sultan summoned him before the council, and there informed him that not only his own wishes but the good of the empire demanded his marriage, and desired him to give his answer before the assembled ministers. At this, Camarazaman grew so angry and spoke with such heat that the king, naturally irritated at being opposed by his son in full council, ordered the prince to be arrested and locked up in an old tower, where he had nothing but very little furniture, a few books, and a single slave to wait on him. Camarazaman, pleased to be free to enjoy his books, showed himself very indifferent to his sentence. When night came, he washed himself, performed his devotions, and having read some pages of the Quran, lay down on a couch, without putting out the light near him, and was soon asleep. Now there was a deep well in the tower in which Prince Camaralzaman was imprisoned, and this well was a favorite resort of the fairy Miamun, daughter of Damriat, chief of a legion of Jinni. Toward midnight, Miamun floated lightly up from the well, intending, according to her usual habit, to roam about the upper world as curiosity or accident might prompt. The light in the prince's room surprised her, and without disturbing a slave who slept across the threshold, she entered the room, and approaching the bed was still more astonished to find it occupied. The prince lay with his face half hidden by the coverlet. Miamun lifted it a little, and beheld the most beautiful youth she had ever seen. What a marvel of beauty he must be when his eyes are open, she thought. What can he have done to deserve to be treated like this? She could not weary gazing at Camaralzaman, but at length, having softly kissed his brow and each cheek, she replaced the coverlet and resumed her flight through the air. 
As she entered the middle region, she heard the sound of great wings coming toward her, and shortly met one of the race of bad genie. This genie, whose name was Dan Hash, recognized Mia Moon with terror, for he knew the supremacy which her goddess gave over him. He would gladly have avoided her altogether, but they were so near that he must either be prepared to fight or yield to her. So he at once addressed her in a conciliatory tone. Good Mia Moon, swear to me by Allah to do me no harm, and on my side I will promise not to injure you. A cursed genie, replied Mia Moon. What harm can you do me? But I will grant your power and give you the promise you ask. And now tell me what you have seen and done tonight. Fair lady, said Danhash, you meet me at the right moment to hear something really interesting. I must tell you that I come from the farthest end of China, which is one of the largest and most powerful kingdoms in the world. The present king has one only daughter, who is so perfectly lovely that neither you nor I nor any other creature could find adequate terms in which to describe her marvellous charms. You must therefore picture to yourself the most perfect features, joined to a brilliant and delicate complexion and an enchanting expression, and even then imagination will fall short of the reality. The king, her father, has carefully shielded this treasure from the vulgar gaze, and has taken every precaution to keep her from the sight of everyone except the happy mortal he may choose to be her husband. But, in order to give her variety in her confinement, he has built her seven palaces such as never been seen before. The first palace is entirely composed of rock crystal, the second of bronze, the third of fine steel, the fourth of another more precious species of bronze, the fifth of touchstone, and the sixth of silver, and the seventh of solid gold. They are all most sumptuously furnished, whilst the gardens surrounding them are laid out with exquisite taste. In fact, neither trouble nor cost has been spared to make this retreat agreeable to the princess. The report of her wonderful beauty has spread far and wide, and many powerful kings have sent embassies to ask her hand in marriage. The king has always received these embassies graciously, but says that he will never oblige the princess to marry against her will, and she regularly declines each fresh proposal. The envoys have had to leave as disappointed in the result of their missions as they were gratified in their magnificent receptions. Sire, said the princess to her father, you wish me to marry, and I know you desire to please me, for which I am very grateful. But indeed, I have no inclination to change my state, for where could I find so happy a life amid so many beautiful and delightful surroundings? I feel that I could never be as happy with any husband as I am here, and I beg you not to press one on me. At last, an embassy came from a king so rich and powerful that the king of China felt constrained to urge this suit on his daughter. He told her how important such an alliance would be, and pressed her to consent. In fact, he pressed her so persistingly that the princess at length lost her temper and quite forgot the respect due to her father. Sire, cried she angrily, do not speak further of this or any other marriage, or I will plunge this dagger into my breast and so escape from all these impunities. The king of China was extremely indignant with his daughter and replied, You have lost your senses and must be treated accordingly. So he had her shut in one set of rooms in one of her palaces and only allowed her ten old women, of whom her nurse was the head, to wait on her and keep her company. He next sent letters to all the kings who had sued for the princess's hand, begging they would think of her no longer as she was quite insane and he desired his various envoys to make it known that any one who could cure her should have her to wife. Fair Mia Moon, continued Dan Hash, this is the present state of affairs. 
I never pass a day without going to gaze on this incomparable beauty, and I am sure that if you would only accompany me, you would think the sight well worth the trouble, and own that you never saw such loveliness before. The fairy only answered with a peal of laughter, and when at length she had control of her voice, she cried, Oh, come, you are making game of me, and I thought you had something really interesting to tell me, instead of raving about some unknown damsel. What would you say if you could see the prince that I have just been looking at, and whose beauty is really transcendent? That is something worth talking about. You would certainly quite lose your head. Charming Miamun, asked Danhash, may I inquire who and what is the prince of whom you speak? No, replied Miamun, that he is in much the same case as your princess. The king, his father, wanted to force him to marry, and on the prince's refusal to obey, he has been imprisoned in an old tower where I have just seen him. I don't like to contradict a lady, said Danhash, but you must really permit me to doubt any mortal being as beautiful as my princess. Hold your tongue, cried Miamun. I repeat, that is impossible. Well, I do not wish to seem obstinate, replied Danhash. The best plan to test the truth of what I say will be for you to let me take you to see the princess for yourself. There is no need for that, reported Miamun. We can satisfy ourselves in another way. Bring your princess here and lay her down beside my prince. We can then compare them at leisure and decide which is in the right. Danhash readily consented, and after having the tower where the prince was confined pointed out to him, and making a wager with Miamun as to the result of the comparison, he flew off to China to fetch the princess. In an incredibly short time, Danhash returned bearing the sleeping princess. Miamun led him to the prince's room, and the rival beauty was placed beside him. When the prince and the princess lay thus side by side, an animated dispute as to their respective charms arose between the fairy and the genius. Danhash began by saying, Now you see that my princess is more beautiful than your prince. Can you doubt any longer? Doubt? Of course I do, exclaimed Miamun. Why, you must be blind not to see that my prince excels your princess. I do not deny that your princess is very handsome, but only look and you must own that I am in the right. There is no need for me to look any longer said Danhash. My first impression will remain the same. But of course, charming Miamun, I am ready to yield to you if you insist on it. By no means, replied Miamun. I have no idea of being under any obligation to an accursed genius like you. I refer the manner to an umpire, and shall expect you to submit to his verdict. Danhash readily agreed, and on Miamun striking the floor with her foot, it opened and a hideous, hump-backed, lame, squinting genius with six horns on his head, hands like claws, emerged. As soon as he beheld Miamun, he threw himself at her feet and asked her commands. Rise, Kashkash, said she. I summoned you to judge between me and Dunhash. Glance at that couch, and say, without any partiality, whether you think the youth or the maiden lying there is more beautiful. Kashkash looked at the prince and princess with every token of surprise and admiration. At length, having gazed long without being able to come to a decision, he said, Madam, I must confess that I should deceive you were I to declare one to be the handsomer than the other. There seems to me only one way with which to decide the matter, and that is to wake one after the other and judge which of them expresses the greater admiration for the other. This advice pleased Miamun and Danhash, and the fairy at once transformed herself into the shape of a gnat, and, settling on Camaralzaman's throat, stung him so sharply that he woke, and as he did, his eyes fell on the princess of China. Surprised at finding a lady so near him, he raised himself on one arm to look at her. The youth and beauty of the princess at once awoke a feeling to which his heart has as yet been a stranger, and he could not restrain his delight. 
What loveliness! What charms! Oh, my heart, my soul! he exclaimed, as he kissed her forehead, her eyes and mouth in a way which would certainly have roused her had not the genie's enchantments kept her asleep. How fair lady! he cried. You do not wake at the signs of Camaralzaman's love? Be you who you may, he is not unworthy of you. It suddenly occurred to him that perhaps this was the bride his father had destined for him, and that the king had probably had her placed in this room in order to see how far Camaralzaman's aversion to marriage would withstand her charms. At all events, he thought, I will take this ring as remembrance of her. So saying, he drew off a fine ring which the princess wore on her finger, and replaced it by one of his own, after which he lay down again and was soon fast asleep. Then Dan Hash, in his turn, took the form of a gnat and bit the princess on her lip. She started up, and was not a little amazed to see a young man beside her. From surprise she soon passed to admiration, and then to delight on perceiving how handsome and fascinating he was. Why, cried she, was it you my father wished me to marry? How unlucky that I did not know sooner! I should not have made him so angry! But wake up, wake up, for I know I shall love you with all my heart! So saying, she shook Kamaralzaman so violently that nothing but the spells of Moon could have prevented his waking. Oh, why are you so drowsy? So saying, she took his hand and noticed her own ring on his finger, which made her wonder still more. But, as still he remained in a profound slumber, she pressed a kiss on his cheek and soon fell fast asleep too. Then Mia Moon, turning to the genie, said, Well, are you satisfied that my prince surpasses your princess? Another time pray, believe me, when I assert anything. Then, turning to Kashkash, My thanks to you. And now, do you and Dan Hash bear the princess back to her own home? The two jinni hastened to obey, and Mia Moon returned to her well. On waking next morning, the first thing Prince Camaralzaman did was to look around for the lovely lady he had seen at night, and next to question the slave who waited on him about her. But the slave persisted so strongly that he knew nothing of any lady, and still less of how she got into the tower, that the prince lost all patience, and after giving him a good beating, tied a rope round him and ducked him in the well till the unfortunate man cried out that he would tell everything. Then the prince drew him up all dripping wet, but the slave begged to change his clothes first, and as soon as the prince consented, hurried off just as he was to the palace. Here he found the king talking to the grand vizier of all the anxiety his son had caused him. The slave was admitted at once, and cried, Alas, sire, I bring sad news to your majesty. There can be no doubt that the prince has completely lost his senses. He declares that he saw a lady sleeping on his couch last night, and the state you see me in proves how violent contradiction makes him. Then he gave a minute account of all the prince had said and done. The king, much moved, begged the vizier to examine into this new misfortune, and the latter at once went to the tower, where he found the prince quietly reading a book. After the first exchange of greetings, the vizier said, I feel very angry with your slave for alarming his majesty about the news he brought him. What news? asked the prince. Ah, replied the vizier, something very absurd, I feel sure, seeing how I find you. Most likely, said the prince. But now that you are here, I am glad of the opportunity to ask you where is the lady who slept in this room last night. The Grand Vizier felt beside himself at this question. Prince, he exclaimed, how would it be possible for any man, much less a woman, to enter this room at night without walking over your slave on the threshold? Pray, consider the matter, and you will realize that you have been deeply impressed by some dream. But the prince angrily insisted on knowing who and where the lady was, and was not to be persuaded by all the vizier's protestations to the contrary that the plot had not been one of his making. At last, losing patience, he seized the vizier by the beard and loaded him with blows. "'Stop, prince!' cried the unhappy vizier. "'Stay and hear what I have to say!' But the prince, whose arm was getting tired, paused. "'I confess, prince,' said the vizier, "'that there is some foundation for what you say.' But 
You well know that a minister has to carry out his master's orders. Allow me to go and take the king any message you may choose to send. Very well, said the prince. Then go and tell him that I consent to marry the lady whom he sent me or brought here last night. Be quick and bring me back his answer. The vizier bowed to the ground and hastened to leave the room. Well, asked the king as soon as he appeared, and how did you find my son? Alas, sire, was the reply, the slave's report is only too true. Then he gave an excellent account of his interview with Kamaralzaman, and of the prince's fury when he told him that it was not possible for any lady to have entered his room, and of the treatment he himself had received. The king, much distressed, determined to clear up the matter himself, and, ordering the vizier to follow him, set out to visit his son. The prince received his father with profound respect, and the king, making him sit beside him, asked him several questions to which Kamarazman replied with much good sense. At last the king said, My son, pray tell me about the lady who it is said was in your room last night. Sire, replied the prince, pray do not increase my distress in this matter, but rather make me happy by giving her to me in marriage. However much I may have objected to matrimony formerly, the sight of this lovely girl has overcome all my prejudices, and I will gratefully receive her from your hands. The king was almost speechless on hearing his son, but after a time assured him most solemnly that he knew nothing whatever about the lady in question, and had not connived at her appearance. He then desired the prince to relate the whole story to him. Kamarazaman did so at great length, showed the ring, and implored his father to help him find the bride so ardently desired. "'After all you tell me,' remarked the king, "'I can no longer doubt your word, but how and whence the lady came, or why she should have stayed such a short time, I cannot imagine.' The whole affair is indeed mysterious. Come, my dear son, let us wait together for happier days. So saying, the king took Kamaralzaman by the hand and led him back to the palace, where the prince took his bed and gave himself up to despair, and the king, shutting himself up with his son, entirely neglected the affairs of state. The prime minister, who was the only person admitted, felt it his duty at last to tell the king how much the court and all the people complained of his seclusion, and how bad it was for the nation. He urged the sultan to remove the prince to a lovely little island close by, whence he could easily attend public audiences, and where the charming scenery and fine air would do the invalid so much good as to enable him to bear his father's occasional absence. The king approved the plan, and as soon as the castle on the island could be prepared for their reception, he and the prince arrived there, Shahsaman never leaving his son except for the prescribed public audiences twice a week. End of chapter 26 Recording by Angelica Gabriella Wilson, Osaka, Japan.